This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. So hello, today we have Dr. Nancy Yen Shepley. She is an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in sports-related injuries like the knee, ankle, shoulder, etc. Dr. Shepley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To start the podcast, let's kind of start start with like an origin story. Every superhero has kind of an origin story. So um, <laughs> how did you become an orthopedic surgeon? So I, I had a really non-traditional route. I went to UCLA for my undergrad, and, and I remember as a freshman, I walked into my very first bio class, and lo and behold, there were like 600 people in there. And and I thought, oh my God, everybody else here wants to be a doctor. And, and I think at 17, you don't always know exactly what you want to be when you grow up, and, and I, I probably chose medicine for the wrong reasons at that time. I got weeded out. I ended up being a psych major at a great time in college. It was just an important part of my formative years, but I, I ended up not going, not applying to medical school straight out of college. I, after I graduated from college, I had some interesting, interesting jobs. And so I, I spent my first year after college working for probably minimum wage as a sales and, and marketing associate for a really, really small snowboarding company based out of Southern California. And that was fun, but it not, not a career move. It was just something to pass the time. And then I spent about five years working in a family business in which I not only translated in front of, um, live groups, Chinese to English and, um, and vice versa for a, what we call a Qigong master, somebody who teaches Qigong or Chinese medicine and uh, Tai Chi type of exercises. But I also ran, uh, ran the business and set up events and coordinated conferences. So I, I did that for a couple of years. And as a result of my exposure to that, I also went to acupuncture school. Now, I, I didn't end up practicing acupuncture, but but as a result of my exposure to that whole side of medicine, it, it actually kind of reawakened my interest in allopathic medicine or what we know as Western medicine. So as a fully board certified orthopedic surgeon, but also with the background in acupuncture, what's your take on acupuncture? You know, I think that it has a lot of utility. My, my philosophy has always been, and even though, you know, I'm, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I cut on people, you know, it's like I, this is the most invasive thing you could do. I still believe that there are nuggets of wisdom to be gained from both the traditional or the, you know, what we consider traditional allopathic medicine, Western medicine, as well as all these different complementary forms of medicine and including acupuncture. And I do think that it has its role. And I've always liked the term complementary because I feel like it should be a complement to everything else you're doing and not an alternative. I, I, you know, I don't like thinking of it as an alternative because you really shouldn't ignore your Western medicine either. What's, you know? <laughs> what's interesting is one of the, the nurses wanted to start doing aromatherapy for the patients before they had an interventional pain procedure. 
And it made a very dramatic difference. Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. My hospital system sent out a a memo, and and I'm in private practice, but I I have privileges at, at a hospital system. They sent out a memo saying that one of the first line agents for nausea to be used in the emergency room should be, it ha- it came from aromatherapy. And, and I can't remember if it was like citrus or if it was ginger. I'm by no means an aromatherapy expert, but they, they said this should be the first line for nausea before you try anything else. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's gaining a little bit of popularity, I think. And who knows? I mean, it, if it, if it doesn't harm and it, and the person's going to subjectively say, Hey, I, I don't, I don't have as much nausea or I feel calmer, then there's no harm. So you did the acupuncture thing. And then, so out of curiosity, when you were doing these other jobs, did you ever think of yourself like one day I'm going to become an orthopedic surgeon? Like what was oh, your, no idea. what was your frame of mind <laughs> at that point in time? I, I, I think in those couple of years after college, I was still trying to figure out what, who I was, what I wanted to do. And as I, as I started to study a little bit more, of the acupuncture. I, I also had a lot of really good mentors that were physicians as well. And in funnily, they, they went the MD route and then came around and said, Hey, I'm kind of interested in this Chinese medicine, et cetera, to round out my practice. And I, I kind of came the other way around. And so I was, as I was learning a little bit more about acupuncture and, and traditional Chinese medicine, I said, Hey, this is clearly, it's not the whole picture. And I think I, I do want to be a physician. And that's when I decided to go do my post back, uh, my post baccalaureate courses. I was working full time. I was traveling three weekends out of the month and I pieced together my post back classes at like four different universities. Um, and then I applied to medical school. So were, were there, um, other doctors in your family or how did you decide? you want to be a doctor versus any other profession? You know, I, um, I'm, I'm the first in my family. And so, no, I, I did not grow up around other physicians. You know, the only doctors I knew were the ones that I went to go see, like my pediatrician. And so it, encountering the physicians that I had met around that time who gave me the encouragement to, to pursue medicine, that, that was influential. And in fact, I was talking to one of our family friends at that point, I was thinking, well, you know, I, I'm really interested in this acupuncture, but I think that, you know, maybe, maybe I should go to nursing school and maybe I should go to, maybe I should think about going to PA school. And, and she said, why aren't you just going to medical school? Why don't you just be the doctor? Because you can. And, and it kind of lit a little fire in me. And I was like, oh, so, so as a quick comment, so getting into medical school is not trivial. So to get into medical school for anyone who's interested in doing it, your academic scores have to be good. Right. And then you have to take this test called the MCAT. And the reason I'm spelling this out is that I, I there are no doctors in my family. I'm the first one that became a doctor in my family. And like I would watch the TV show ER to be like, well, what is it like to be a doctor? Because we don't know any other doctors. Naturally, real life being a doctor is not like the show ER. No, no. It's more like scrubs. Kind of, yeah. With <laughs> with more stress. Um so no, so your 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 grades have to be good. And it's and when you yeah. said like, oh yeah, I got into medical school. So you also have to take this test called the MCAT, which oh, yeah. you have to score very well on. So it right. it's not this trivial thing. No, no, it was trivial. I, I worked my butt off. 
So, and then what did you think about medical school when you first started? I think it was challenging. I applied and, well, I got accepted into Drexel in Philadelphia. And one of the reasons I chose that program was because they, in addition to their traditional curriculum, where it's like you go to lecture, you sit in lecture hall all day, and then at the end of the quarter, you take a test. Um, I, I think I had a little bit more maturity at that point to know myself and know that after having been out of school for a little while, that that may not be the best track for me. And they had a problem-based learning track or a small group learning track where it, it, it just spoke to me a little bit more. And I think jumping into that was a better transition in that you attend these small groups, you have the same learning objectives, and you end up in the same point as everybody else who's in that other conventional track. But you spend time researching your learning objectives, and then you teach each other with a moderator in the small group. And we still had exams just like the the other track did, but the style of learning was so much more engaging rather than passive that I actually really, really enjoyed that part of medical school. I, I may not have done as well. I may not have thrived in, in your conventional sit in a lecture hall all day, all week. Well, I think that's really interesting because everyone has a different learning style. So that's interesting that you had that insight into how you would learn best. Oh, yeah. I, I knew my shortcomings. <laughs> the first two years of medical school, it's a lot of you're sitting in class, getting a lot of typical medical school. You're getting a lot of just information thrown at you. And right. then the last two, you start rotating through the specialties. So what did you th – so for me, like when I first started rotating through the specialties, I didn't realize what call was. So call is where you're just up for a very long period of time, like 24, 36 hours, yeah. which seemed ridiculous to me. But what was your thoughts on that second half of medical school? You know, I was really excited to, to start that. You know, I think, I think you have two camps of medical students. Either, either you end up being terrified of having to go out and talk to real patients or, or you can't wait. And I was in the camp of, uh, I can't wait. And, and part of that may have been because I came into school a little bit older. I was almost 30 when I started medical school. And I also had some real world experience talking to people of all ages. Sometimes you get folks that go straight through. And if you don't have any real world experience and you're not comfortable having this one-on-one -on -one serious conversation with someone who is twice your age or three times your age, then then the second half of medical school can be pretty daunting. I, I found it refreshing to actually get out of the classroom and actually be on the floors and be on the wards and be in the OR. So it was exciting for me. During the third and fourth year, you try out all these different specialties. So mm -hmm. I remember being in neurosurgery and I thought it was very dull because they're, they're operating on this little tiny hole that's about a centimeter by a <laughs> centimeter with this big microscope and you can't see anything and the surgeon's po right. like poking around for a thousand hours. And but, but orthopedic surgery, it was almost like carpentry, but with people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's one way to think of it. But what was your, yeah. what are your thoughts mm. on like why orthopedic surgery? So I had a great shadowing experience between my first and second year. So you get a little bit of time off, or at least most students do between their first and second years. And I had a family friend at the time um, back in California that I was able to spend some time with a couple of weeks. And I, I had no idea what orthopedics was. I, I he, he said, hey, why don't you just come spend some time with me? You might like it. And I remember being in the OR and watching this. Um, total hip replacement where 
it was this big incision. They're lopping out the femoral head and putting metal and plastic back in. And, uh, and I remember being fascinated, blown away. I've not, I'm not a person who, well, thank God, because I'm, I'm a surgeon, not a person who passes out with blood. So I, I was in awe and I was like, man, that was a huge surgery. And then I, I was fortunate in that I wasn't just shadowing that day. I was shadowing long enough to see the person walk in the following week for their first post-op, like walking in. And, and as somebody who had very little exposure to medicine and or orthopedics, to be able to see this person go through this massive kind of bloody surgery and walk in was unbelievable. I was like, my mind was blown just to be able to restore function with a procedure like that. So that kind of piqued my interest. I wasn't necessarily saying, oh my God, I'm sold on orthopedics. But um, once I started my third year rotation, I jumped right into surgery. That was my first rotation. It's it's a lot of times the most, one of the more challenging rotations, or at least at my school it was. And one of my electives was ortho. I was very fortunate in that uh, that particular department was was very much like, hey, get your hands in here, get them dirty. And they would hand me a drill, talk to me about the mechanics of fracture fixation, you know, drilling, putting screws in. That week or two, I think, that I spent with the orthopedic department, it cemented it for me. And sometimes you just know this is what I'm meant to do. So the typical orthopedic surgeon is a large guy who looks like he should be playing football. Yeah. So like you're me. not a large guy who looks like they should no. be playing football. So how how do you lift the really heavy body parts when you're putting them back together? Yeah, you know, it's true. There are some big legs out there. And so there is some heft involved. But, you know, the, like especially with the advent of power tools, like they're, they're, you definitely have to be, you have to have some strength. But but, you know, honestly, I never once thought of it as an impediment that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a tiny girl, but I'm 5'7", I'm 135 pounds. You know, I, I never thought that it was an impediment to me. So and, you weren't a power was, lifter or anything? No, not at all. Um, athletic, but not a power lifter. And, and you know, what probably made the biggest difference in, in me not being shied away was the, the people that I worked with, the attendings that I worked with and residents that I worked with at that time gave me the same opportunities that they gave all the other guys on the rotation and never said, Oh, that's going to be too heavy for you. Let me do that for you. And no one, no one treated me any differently. And that was what, you know, what made me not even give it a second thought that I should, you know, I should pursue this. Uh, just, just to interrupt. So sometimes. Yeah. Some people will say that they're not given advantages in life or people just don't like them or people have things against them. But clearly this mm-hmm. worked out well for you. So what are some of the things that you think that you did that – because often people, when they know a lot of things, they want to teach and they want to pass on their knowledge. But they don't want to do that if someone is annoying. But what are the, some of the things that you do that – and I think that would be really helpful for, for people in any field. What are some of the things that you do that facilitate someone wanting to teach you? Okay, so what what do I do that makes me not annoying? Um, <laughs> kind of. So, so um, you know, and and if we're speaking relative to, to like being a medical student on a rotation, for example, I think that's what you're asking. Yes. Right. The scenario: be willing to stay late, be helpful, and and some of it is just kind of watching and learning the nuances of when to jump in and give a hand, 
when to step back because you're going to be in the way. That's not always natural. And it takes a lot of people watching to kind of get that sense. But developing that sense, I think, makes you less annoying and makes people want to teach you and, and just showing eagerness to learn. And and at that time, when I went into it, I didn't know I was going to go into orthopedics. And and with with any rotation, I think advice for a medical student, even if it's something you know you're not going to go into, show enthusiasm, show that you're there to learn. That might be the last time you're going to learn it, right? Um, if you go into a subspecialty, and you know you may not get that exposure again. So I think trying to 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 show your positivity in that in that setting is going to really take you a long way. You know, it's, it's attitude and work ethic. I think there are a lot of people that are in their mid, early to mid twenties that are kind of lost and yeah. then they've taken time off and then sometimes they feel bad about that. But how do you think taking time off affected, say, that learning process? Like, could you have been an, such an effective student had you not taken time off? No way. I, I like, there's no, well, I don't even know if I would have. Like, had I stuck with the pre-med, I don't know if I would have made it to medical school. And if I, if I did, I just don't know that I would have had the maturity. And, and, and I think that my path was, was, was perfect for me, you know? And, and I know plenty of fellow physicians who go straight through. They're wonderful and awesome human beings. They're mature, but that wasn't me. That wasn't my path and it wasn't what it was meant to be. So I think the advantage of having been out there. Um, working for a couple of years gave me um, the maturity that I needed to do well. And and I think when you see people who have a little bit of life experience before they go back to school, in the third and fourth years is when they really shine. And they have a jump on some of the folks who maybe are just now getting used to talking to another adult on an adult-to-adult level as a physician or as a student doctor. Then you, you decided to go into orthopedic surgery. So orthopedic surgery mm-hmm. is a very competitive specialty. And so just to remind everyone, so you did some undergrad, you took some time off, you did more undergrad. Then you yeah. went through four years of medical school and then, which is very time intensive. Then you go on to orthopedic surgery. So mm-hmm. how, that's what, five, a five year program? It's a five-year program. Mm-hmm. And when you're, uh, so when you were doing orthopedic surgery, how many hours were you putting in per week? Well, the max was 80. <laughs> okay. So you were under that 80 hour so, work week deal. Orthopedic surgery is five years. You were in that window where you could work a max of 80 hours per week. So the average work week is about 40 hours. You were putting 80 hours a week. Not every week. Um, you know, I mean, it was probably in the 60, you know, 60 up to 80. And so, but when you're not working, you still have to study. Yes. So when you're not working 60, 70 hours a week, and then you're not studying, did you have a social life during your residency? I, I did surprisingly somehow, um, somehow I did. And, And somehow I managed to still find, you know, still find time to, to spend time with my husband and, and at that time, my dog, I didn't have kids at that time, but, and, and really make some of the best lifelong friends I think I'll, I'll have. And, and, you know, I don't know, maybe some people would, would call it, what is it? Survivor syndrome, or I forget what it, what, what it's called, but you kind of go through this trying experience together. And I, I made, I became really, really good friends with a lot of the residents that were both in my orthopedic program and, or some of the other programs. And so the residents were definitely a, a tight knit bunch. And, 
you know, obviously at that time you're, you're dedicating a lot of time to just being in the hospital, reading for your case, you know, revisiting your anatomy, learning your indications, studying for your, your in-service exams, but there's still time to be a normal human, I think. So is your husband, um, in the medical field? Yes. Yeah. We did. We met in, in medical school in Philadelphia. Okay. And, um, we did what's called the couples match. And so, so for, for those listening that don't know what that is, basically it doesn't have to be your spouse. I think we were engaged, but not married at that time. It could be your best friend. It could be your, your buddy, your sister, whatever. You decide you're going to apply together and you put in your, your ranking list of where you want to go. Uh, in and you pair your places, your preferences together, and it matches you to your ultimate destination for residency um, based on that list. So you're not separated. Um, so, so we did the couples match. Did you have a conversation with your husband to say, I am doing orthopedic surgery. You're going to see me very little over the next five years. Um, you know, I never, I never had to have that conversation. I think it, it started with, I'm going into orthopedic surgery. And then he probably thought I'm going to see you very little over the next five years. But you know what? We ended up in the same, I'm, I'm kind of joking that we ended up in the same hospital. And so that was really nice. I would occasionally run into him there, but I felt like we still had a very normal and healthy relationship and, and we still saw each other. And what's his specialty? So he is pulmonary critical care. So that's, that's three years of internal medicine and then three years of the pulmonary critical care. Cool. And then, so you did your five years of orthopedic surgery and then you, did you do an official fellowship? In- I did. Yeah. I did, um, a sports medicine and arthroscopy fellowship also in Richmond, Virginia, where I did my, um, residency. So what is a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon? A lot of sports medicine orthopedic surgeons will still do the fracture care and fix broken bones and do kind of the general orthopedics. But what our subspecialty is are sports injuries, injuries of the ligaments and the tendons and arthroscopic surgery. One of my passions is in particular arthroscopic surgeries as well as open surgeries of the shoulder, which is definitely my probably one of my favorite joints. And we treat athletes of all levels. We treat non-athletes that have injuries of the shoulders and the knees. So in a nutshell, that's that's our that's what sports medicine and arthroscopy is all about. So if someone has a shoulder injury and they're an athlete, so first let's who what type of athlete do you see the most? I, for I probably issues. treat, um, I probably treat, <clears throat> excuse me, high school athletes and we have, I, I take care of uh, the athletes of one of the small colleges here in Portland, Oregon as well, um, Multnomah University. And so they're, they're usually younger athletes in the late teens to, to twenties. Um, but I take care of a ton of recreational athletes. We have a huge biking community here. And um, snow sports are big here. So I take care of a lot of skiers, snowboarders, mountain bikers, you know, cross, um, you know, cross, what do you call it? Crossfit. I, um, cross, not crossfit, the, um, the other biking type of race. But we, I take, a lot, I take care of a lot. Of, well, that too. <laughs> Cyclocross is what I was looking for. Okay. Cyclocross. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, a lot, a lot of recreational athletes, and I probably take care of even more recreational athletes than than say, you know, the organized team athletes. So do you have you have kids, correct? I have one kid. So are there any sports that you would not let your kid play? Football. 
<laughs> okay. Anything else? <laughs> you know, that's probably, that might be it. And maybe, you know, and it's, it's tough because I'm, I'm in a tough position and I don't want to say definitively football, but gosh, it's, it sure is scary being, I, I take care of football athletes. I'm a team doctor. I'm, I'm field side and I love taking care of the athletes, but but for my own child, it scares me. The concussion part scares me. Plus, he's also not going to be built like a football player. So I don't think I have to worry about that. But I mean, you know, I, I've asked myself that question a lot because he skis and you can have terrible accidents in skiing and, and we paddleboard and, and we ride bikes and all sorts of crazy stuff can happen doing any of those sports. So, you know, I, it, I don't know if it's entirely fair for me to just single out football. Um, how do you feel um, about um, hockey or, say, soccer? He's playing soccer. <laughs> you know, there's still concussion risk in soccer. It's not quite as quite as high as football. But, yeah, I think if he continues to play soccer, I'll let him play. Um, um, what about boxing? Boxing? Uh, you know, I worry a little bit about the head trauma. I think it depends on it, how old the child is. You know, obviously, with the younger kids, you don't want to have them taking – Close to the head, just like in soccer, you don't want the younger kids doing headers. And your thoughts on younger kids doing weightlifting? I think if if you wait until their their joints can can handle the increased loads, like when they get a little bit closer into sort of mid high school, then it ends up being safer than with very young kids, obviously. Sure. So if, okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. So someone is playing, let's pretend it's football or some other sport. They injure their shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, they try probably physical therapy. Like why would someone see you as an orthopedic surgeon? You know, I'll, I'll take care of, um, sports injuries from really beginning to end. And, and sometimes, uh, somebody with a, a shoulder injury may end up in their primary care's office. They may do some PT, but, but I, I get plenty of patients who, who come to me directly just by word of mouth. Um, and so I may be the first person who's looked at their shoulder at all. Um, so I'll, I'll evaluate the person. I'll do a physical exam. I may get some x-rays if necessary. I'll get some more imaging like an MRI and if it's something that I feel is amenable to physical therapy and doesn't need surgery, then I'll direct them that way and get them started with some conservative treatment. If it is something like, um, you know, a younger athlete with a significant labral tear and they're having recurrent dislocations or the shoulder keeps slipping out of place, then, then we know that that, that, you know, the joint's kind of declaring itself as needing needing surgical intervention or fractures, obviously fractures sometimes are easy. AC separations. Uh, those are all injuries in and around the shoulder that sometimes may, may need surgery, but sometimes not. What is one of, what are one or two or maybe three of the things that you wish more people knew about shoulder care and shoulder surgery? Well, you know, maybe talking about, we've been talking a lot about younger athletes, but I take care of a ton of people who are 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond and um, kind of in the adult to older adult age range, rotator cuff injuries are on the radar a lot more. And what people are often surprised to find is that not every rotator cuff tear needs to be fixed. And, and I have a lot of well-meaning primary care doctors who will go ahead and, and 
get the MRI ahead of time. And then they say, oh, my God, you have a rotator cuff tear. You need to have it fixed. And so I'll have patients coming in saying, my my primary doctor says this has to be fixed. And, and people are really surprised to find that I actually spend a lot of time talking people out of surgery. There are certain cuff tears that need to be fixed and certain ones that just, just don't and will get better with conservative treatment. Um, same question regarding the hips and the knees. I, I treat some injuries of the hips. I will, I don't do hip replacements, but sports injuries in and around the hips I do treat and I definitely treat a ton of knees. So things that are surprising about those joints, I would, um, you know, kind of similarly with, depending on the age group, uh, similarly with meniscus tears, um, they don't all need to be fixed either. And especially with the older folks who come in with arthritic knees. They'll come in and they'll say, oh, my gosh, I have this MRI and, oh, my God, I have a meniscus tear. And I'll say, but, oh, my God, your arthritis is terrible. You don't need a meniscus surgery. It, it kind of is overshadowed by the arthritis and the true problem. The true reason they're actually having pain is because they have an arthritic knee, whereas the meniscus is this poor, innocent bystander that is just getting torn up by the rough surfaces of the, the cartilage. And I think a really common surgery is a knee scope or shoulder scope. Mm -hmm. uh, what is that and how does it work and how does it benefit? Sure. So um, arthroscopic surgery means that we, we make these tiny little incisions and our instruments fit through the incision. And one of the tools that I use is the arthroscope, um, which projects, it's a camera, an underwater camera, essentially. We fill the joint with fluid. And the camera projects onto a video screen, so it's almost like I'm playing video games. And I and I can see the inside of the joint on on that screen. And I'll use another little portal or arthroscope incision uh, to put my tools in there so that I can do work inside the joint. And there's a myriad of of different procedures that we can do arthroscopically. Can you name some of the common things you would do through a scope? Sure. Yeah, sure. So in the knees, we are often doing. Um, meniscus surgeries, whether it's shaving off a piece of the meniscus that is torn and flipped and can't be fixed or, or meniscus repair. I do my ACL surgeries, arthroscopic assisted. There's still some open incision, albeit small. Um, so a, a big part of that procedure is done arthroscopically. In the shoulder, I do my rotator cuff tears arthroscopically. I will do an arthroscopic assisted AC joint reconstruction for when people have a separated shoulder that needs surgery. Um, and as I mentioned before, labrum surgery, if somebody has a lot of dislocations, then I do a labral repair. And that is um, something that I do arthroscopically as well. Actually, just to back up. So as far as ACL surgery, if someone pops their ACL, can you fix that? We don't fix them anymore. I think decades ago, um, surgeons used to try to sew it, sew it together. But a lot of times when I get in there and the ACL is torn, it may look like moppins. There's not really anything to sew. And even, even when back in the day when they used to try to just repair them directly, these, these failed miserably. It just doesn't have that healing potential to, to heal to the point where the, it'll withstand the forces that the ACL undergoes. And so what we do is an ACL reconstruction where we take tissue either from the, the person, uh, like their hamstring or their patellar tendon, or in some cases we'll take cadaver tissue to essentially rebuild that ACL. And we do a lot of it through the scope. 
um, but would still make incisions to drill some bone tunnels to, to get our, um, to get our tendons stocked in there. What are your thoughts on platelet-rich plasma and stem cells? Um, colleagues of mine in the pain world, um, anecdotally, you're having very good results from them. You know, and I think I think that's a great question. I get that question a lot from patients. I, I think we need a little bit more evidence. There needs to be a little bit more data. There's there's a, a lot of anecdotal evidence that it can be helpful with uh, conditions of the joints and or tendons. The the AAOS or our academy, Orthopedic Academy, position statement is that the it it it, it can be of benefit in conditions like uh, tennis elbow. Which is a tendinopathy of the, um, of the elbow. You don't have to play tennis to have it, but that it may be beneficial in that in that case. But you know, for all the other areas, the data is a little bit more limited. But on the on the flip side of things, because there is a lot of anecdotal benefit, I am not opposed to uh, giving it a try in a, in a, a joint if there is degeneration or some early arthritis because. You know, there's there's very little downside to it. I mean, other than cost, there's very little downside to it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You don't keep doing it. So how would someone go about choosing an orthopedic surgeon? I think one of the best ways is is word of mouth. If you know somebody who's had a very good experience, that's that's a good way to get somebody who is going to have a good bedside manner. But another way to um, research this is to look at their training, look at their credentials. It is a good idea to see if somebody has subspecialty training or fellowship training in um, in the area that you're interested in having them look at. I think that uh, those are are two good ways to look at it. And it's funny, I I often will ask my patients, hey, so how did you hear about us? How did you hear about me? And I'll have a lot of patients say. Oh, well, I just looked you up on the internet and whatever rating system gave you a bunch of stars or there were good reviews. I'm always flattered and I say, Oh, great. You know, I'm really glad you found me. But what a lot of people don't know and the general public doesn't know is that like those various rating systems online, like it, I, I wouldn't necessarily trust Yelp. I, I'm lucky in that I have good ratings on these apparently. But, um, but you know, you have somebody like, say, for example, you have somebody who, um, maybe has a patient who comes in who maybe doesn't have their own best interests in mind or, you know, some ulterior motive or, or something. And they come in and they don't like the way, yeah, they don't like the clothes you wore that day or, Maybe they didn't like your front desk person or, or something or something on as far as their perception goes is, is not to their liking. Boom. One star. Is it, is, is it reflective of that doctor's actual skill and bedside manner? It's not. And so I, I think that sometimes those online rating systems and stars, it's, it's not always accurate and really should be taken with a grain of salt. Well, I think you had a really important point where there's a difference between someone who is an orthopedic surgeon, even though they've had extensive training, there's still a difference between a general orthopedic surgeon and someone who has that subspecialty training. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, something to consider is that if you look at the surgeons that are in the generation where they're now in their maybe mid to late 50s, probably late 50s and into their 60s, they're kind of on the you know, getting a little bit closer to retirement. But if you look at that generation, there really weren't fellowships back then. 
And so I would not hold it against somebody if they have been practicing for 30 years and they do a ton of hip or, hip or knee replacements or they do a ton of shoulder replacements. I would not consider that a ding against them that they didn't do a fellowships because they didn't exist. But the trend now in recent years coming out of residency is that people are doing fellowships. People tend, tend to do more fellowships if they want to subspecialize. Now that said, there are plenty of people who come out of residency that go into general practice that are phenomenal surgeons and are, are masters of their craft. I, I would say that if there is any kind of complexity to the problem that you're looking to have treated, then it may be a good idea to find somebody who is fellowship trained. Well, I think you can always get someone without that subspecialty training that may be good, but sure. the subspecialty training, I think, shows a little bit more interest on the physician's part. And it's just another, I think, level of evidence that they're going to be good at what they're doing. Yeah, I agree. So to kind of spin into a different topic, so you went through a very difficult residency, you do orthopedic surgery, but then you also have an interest in skincare. Sure, yeah. You know, I, I like to consider myself kind of a multifaceted person. And, you know, I got involved this year with Redan and Fields, which is founded by Stanford dermatologists. And while I'm a full-time practicing orthopedic surgeon and fully dedicated to my craft, this has been something that's been really fun and has kind of tapped into my creative side and also my interest that has is, is actually been around for a long time in skincare. And so I am an independent consultant for Rodan and Fields. And, and what that means is I do some education on these uh, skincare products and I it, treat it as a side business. And I find that it's it's one of the things that I really like about it is that it has allowed me to empower other women to take control of their finances and their and really be kind of the owner of their own business when it would be difficult to do otherwise. So this has been a really fun project for me to be involved in. I so find in it very a, rewarding. So in medicine, the attending is what you call like the lead physician who leads the team and they have people training under them. And really good teams will have a really strong attending leading the right. field. So you're kind of so now you're the attending of orthopedic surgery and the attending of skincare for this Rodan and Fields. That's a really fun way to look at it. And I like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. Cause I feel like you had, like you've related a lot of very strong life skills. It seems like you would have a lot to mentor someone in a really practical way. Right. I, I think that, you know, some of the things that I work with on my team members in the skincare business translates, like you said, to, all sorts of things, and whether it is to their career or just to, to just life skills in general. I mean, we really teach our consultants to think about their why. You know, what is their why in getting involved? And that that has a lot to do with defining your values, um, your value system, and what your personal mission what your personal mission is and what's important to you. And I think doing that is important, whether it's in your skincare business or in your orthopedic surgery practice or in, in just life in general, it helps us hone in on what's important and to be, and to direct our energies towards what's going to ultimately bring you fulfillment. 
And, and that's one of the great lessons that I teach my team men- members um, as a Rudan and Fields consultant. And that translates so far beyond just skincare. Like, who do you think would be a good member of your team? I think, you know, I, I joined several other physicians in doing this, but kind of in our, in our greater team, there's just a wide variety of, of women and men who are involved. And I think anyone who wants to enrich their life with, with a skincare regimen that is scientifically tested, dermatologist developed, and wants to have something of their own, a business of their own, somebody who's a go-getter, that's going to be the perfect team member. Um, it's, it's not every day that you can, can decide to have your own business with very little investment upfront and a very rapid return on investment. And so that's, that's one of the things I like about this business is that just anybody, it, just about anybody can do it. You don't have to have this big giant capital investment to be able to really kind of be the owner of your own business. And then you are also interested in public speaking. I like to talk. You can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what are, are some of the things that you are passionate about other than the skincare? Oh, actually, um, before we move on, what oh, is yeah. it that you really love about the Rodan and Fields? Like, why did you choose? Because there are a lot of skincare lines that are out there, but what is it that you really yeah. love about the Rodan and Fields skincare line? Well, one of the things was that what I already mentioned was that it's, it's dermatologist developed. And so, you know, I trust science. I trust the science, but, you know, personally speaking, um, the experience that kind of, kind of, turn things around for me before I even became a consultant was I actually lost all my lashes. I lost all my lashes because I was foolishly kind of, I don't know if I want to say foolish, but I, I went and got lash extensions because everybody was like, well, get lash extensions. You don't have to wear makeup. It, and, and I did. And then I ended up losing a bunch of my lashes. And so one of their products is Lash Boost. It helped, helped me grow my native lashes back and, and made them even longer uh, than what I had before. So I was like, Oh, Oh, so that, like this stuff actually works. <laughs> I was like, Oh my gosh, it works. I should look into it. This was before I became a consultant. And, and as I explored the rest of the product lines, I mean, it, yeah, this is not what is the meaning of life, but it certainly feels good when, when I, for example, I walk into my clinic and my MA is like, what have you been doing to your skin? It looks amazing. And, um, you know, and that's, that's another one of the things I love. It just has made my skin look really, really healthy and vibrant, you know, and, and to, to kind of speak to how the, the business model works, it's like you're walking advertisement for, for what you're selling. And so, you know, that's, that's also really nice, but the products work. I mean, the, the bottom line for me is that the products work. So you, you get these all-star reviews on Yelp because you're a great surgeon, but the great skin and lashes probably help as well. <laughs> that doesn't hurt. <laughs> so, uh, so back to what we were talking about before. What, yeah. what are some of the things that you are passionate about and would want to talk about to groups? You know, uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years now, I did this thing called Ortho Watch. So my hospital system regionally gets high school students in a STEM and medicine interest track. They're like sophomores, juniors, and seniors to come down to our hospital auditorium. There's a couple hundred students there. And what they do is they have me and an anesthesiologist, other members of the OR team come and do a pre-talk before a surgery that I live broadcast. 
I'm always super impressed that they're able to get these high school students here at 5.36 in the morning, and they are wide awake. (laughs) But I had the opportunity to talk to these students about not only the surgery that I was going to do, but they live mic'd me up so that and set up all sorts of cameras so that they could actually watch the surgery and I could talk them through what I was doing live. So if anyone Um, has never seen an orthopedic surgery, it's not like a trivial thing you're like like (laughs) cutting things and hammering things yeah and it's so funny because i just did my second one i did another acl surgery and i was just read tonight i was just reading through my feedback from the students and one of the questions they asked them was what surprised you most about your experience and at least four or five of them said i was really surprised that surgery is not delicate and that she was kind of aggressive and she was <laughs> drilling into the bone with an actual drill. And I think, and that gave me a chuckle and, and maybe cause I'm so used to doing it. I was like, Oh yeah, I guess if, you know, if you've never seen surgery before and this was the first one, it's like, you know, we're not, we were delicate when we have to be, but you're probably delicate with not. your Rodan and field skincare line, but orthopedic surgery oh, yeah. is definitely not delicate. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there are times for in, in orthopedic surgery where you have to be delicate. We do work around nerves and vessels and other very important structures. But there are other times where you kind of got to put a little oomph into it. But anyway, like back to your question, I live broadcast the surgery. And then afterwards, I came down and gave a talk about what it takes to be an orthopedic surgeon and kind of what my day to day life was. And when I did this about two years ago, it made me realize how much I love speaking to groups, how much I love teaching people what I know, and maybe hopefully inspiring someone to take the path that I did and to not doubt themselves and to not let fear get in their way to paralyze themselves from really shooting for the stars and and reaching for those dreams. Well, I I think you're living that message because you didn't really have a traditional path. It's not like everyone in your family was a doctor and they just kind of spelled it out for you. You kind of had to, I'd imagine, figure it out as you went along. Yeah, I kind of had to figure it out. And, and, you know, and, and like back when I was saying it, it took a family friend saying, well, why why not apply to medical school? I think it's really important to ask why not. I think like Simon Sinek's TED Talk about asking why not, hopefully I'm getting that one right, but that's just such a great phrase. If you are thinking of doing something, you have an aspiration and, and you don't have, if you don't ask yourself why not, or you don't have somebody else to trigger that and say, hey, why not go for that? Then you're going to be stuck and you're not going to be living the fullest life that you can be. Well, I think it's really true that you, you're you the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. You just pick up their thinking patterns and their habits. So it sounds like you got a very strong, supportive social circle around you while you were going through this process. Yeah, I was very fortunate. So actually, I'm going to ask you that, that same question. What does it take to be an orthopedic surgeon? There is the four years of undergraduate you know, plus or minus the six years that I took off. But obviously, you have to get the good grades, you have to score well on the test, the MCAT that you mentioned earlier. But what medical schools are going to look at are is is the whole picture, they're going to look at the test scores, that's what's going to get you in the door, get your foot in the door. But what's going to get you into medical school is a well rounded person. 
if they see that all you know how to do is study and take tests at the expense of having a social life, giving back to the community, volunteering, having other interests and doing things to keep yourself physically healthy, then you're not the complete applicant. So then you do your four years of medical school, getting into a residency thereafter is also an application and interview process. And there are lots of hoops. There are lots of hoops to jump through along the way. And I think the thing to remember is do what you need to do to jump through the hoops and jump high through the hoops. Also, don't forget the rest of you and what makes you you. And that's going to get you far, whether it's to get into med school or to get into residency or to get the right job or ultimately to find fulfillment in your life. And when you say jump through the hoops, can you clarify that a little bit? There are multiple board examinations and or what did we call them in medical Step school? Scores. The, the steps, right? Uh, there are multiple standardized tests you have to take throughout medical school. And then as you go through residency, there are in-service examinations. In orthopedics, we call them OITEs or orthopedic in-training exams. You have to pass as well. And then once you finish residency, then there is another big hoop to jump through, and that's getting board certified. In orthopedic surgery, first there is a written test that you take, then and this is changing soon, but then there is a second part of our board certification examination, and that is the, the live Q&A, where you take cases that you do, surgeries that you do, you have to collect them in a certain period of time, and then a panel chooses which ones to talk to you about, and they basically grill you about them, and it's you versus two examiners. I did that several years ago, and it's it's challenging. It's one of the harder tests because, you know, the other tests you're sitting there looking at either pen and paper or a computer screen. And this one, you've got live orthopedic surgeons grilling you. So that's kind of one of the ultimate hoops. <laughs> that That's a lot of intensity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of intensity. Yeah. Just to close out, what is the single biggest thing you wish people knew about being an orthopedic surgeon or being a woman or being a wife and mom and orthopedic surgeon? You can be it all. <laughs> you know, they always say, oh, you can't have it all, but you can fill all these different roles and you can be good at them. What I would like to leave with people listening and parting is that, you know, you don't have to fit into a box. I, I get people who are surprised I'm an orthopedic surgeon because I'm a woman or that I'm an orthopedic surgeon and I'm a mom or that I'm an orthopedic surgeon and, hey, I like skincare. And nice shoes. You know, it's okay. It's okay to be all of these things, especially as a woman in orthopedic surgery. It's such a male-dominated field. There is not a need to get rid of your femininity. You can embrace all of that and, and not say sorry. And I feel like that would apply to any high-powered female say, executive or lawyer or dentist or mechanic sure. or really yeah. any field out there. CEO, whatever. CEO, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Do you have any um, social media contacts if someone wants to contact you or web pages or podcasts or thing? Yeah. I My website is www.nancyyenshipleymd.com. That's Nancy Yen, Y-E-N, Shipley is S-H-I-P-L-E-Y-M-D.com. I'm Twitter and on Instagram as at underscore Nancy MD. I am on Facebook as Nancy MD or at Nancy MD PDX. So I am on a number of different platforms. You can reach me there. Awesome. Well, Dr. Shipley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again, and see you next time.